0: This podcast is sponsored by Enriched. Now, if you're a regular listener to the show, then you'll know that I'm not a big fan of Big Pharma. So I do everything I can to try and stay out of their sickness subscription system. And a key component in my daily arsenal is a dose of what I'm calling the White Basement Lion King Super Stack. First, chug a mushroom, known as the king of mushrooms for a reason. Its potent antioxidant, antiviral, immune-supporting properties make it the most studied medicinal mushroom on Earth. And although there can be only one king, the king wears a mane, a lion's mane. Brain-boosting, neuron-sharpening, cognition-enhancing, lion's mane is the perfect partner for King Chaga and the second half of the Lion King Super stack. For me, it's the perfect start to my day helping me to go hard and go home. Go to enriched.co, that's E-N-R-I-C-H-D.co and use the discount code WHITEBASEMENTPOD to get a 10% discount site-wide. Start your day like a king. Go to enriched and grab the Lion King Super Stack. Now!
1: When we finished in Glasgow, we came back and we sat there on the Monday evening And uh, Joe says, Cool, blimey mate, I can half fancy some go with some of those fish and chips from Glasgow. I said, Yeah, it'd be nice, wouldn't it? So Billy said, Were they good? We said, Yeah, they're great. Well, come on then, let's go up. And Billy had just bought an MGB MGB GT, little blue sports car. So we got in his car and we drove up to Glasgow for fish and chips.
0: The three of you?
1: No, two of us. Um, Billy Billy and I. And we bought them back. <laughs> so how we, long
0: is that a round trip? That's like eight hours. Oh, it knows
1: there was no motorways then. There was the, the M1 was I think was open then. The M1 was just just abandoned. Then they were cold when you got. Them oh yeah, of course back. they were. I mean that's, that's, that, that's... that didn't matter, did it? You guys that's really, really rock and roll.
0: That is. That's pretty isn't rock and
1: roll. I swear. Oh yeah, it's rock and yeah. roll. that's what we did. We did some duff things.
0: guys, welcome to another episode of the White Basement Podcast. Today I am joined in the studio by Vince Eager and Kirsty Bell, who are shooting a documentary about rock and roll legend Eddie Cochran called Don't Forget Me. Guys, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you very much for having us.
0: This is, uh, this is, um, so I, we were talking a little bit off air before we started uh, recording. So this is, this is quite interesting. I don't know with, with either of you guys how um, into the woo-woo side of things you are. Are you familiar with The Secret? Have you read The Secret or watched The Secret? Have yes, you, Vince? I have. No. It's, a, it's about um, sort of manifesting things, setting your intention to things and, okay. and creating okay. things that you want in your life. So we got new neighbours downstairs in our flat. And we were having dinner with them on Friday night and we got on to talking about The Secret and the 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 woman, Maria, who's moved in, she was saying that she kind of manifested the flat and that's how she got there. They came from uh, Macedonia, they had no money and it all kind of worked out. And I said, yeah, I've watched The Secret a long time ago, about 15 years ago, and uh, I watched it two or three times and I got really excited about it. And I had this build. So this is this is really still a bit freaks me out i had this bill that i needed to pay which was 362 pounds and after i watched the secret two days later in the post i got a refund from the electric company for 362 pounds which which covered that bill and to me it was it was like a just a kind of a message saying this stuff works it's not going to work every time and it's not going to do everything but but this stuff works and then we, we carried on talking and we were talking about the podcast and they said to me, how do you get people to, to come into the podcast? And I said, well, I, I kind of just set my intention that if I'm getting in here and doing these podcasts, people will come and they will want to come on the podcast. And that was on the Friday evening. And then on the Saturday morning, Tom, who owns the studio, said to me, hey, I've got these guys coming in <laughs> on uh, Monday straight after you're in the studio and they want to do a podcast. So that's my I don't know I don't know how that fits with your beliefs on anything, but that's how this kind of rolls into my my normal podcast stuff, that it just kinda of happens the the right way, just when it should and just how it should. And so I think that the question that 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 I would ask you guys to start off with is why now for the documentary?
2: Do you want me to answer that one? You, yes. Yeah. Um So rather oddly um, this project came about through most things which is talking to a man in a pub and uh, the man in the pub happened to be somebody who knew about Eddie Cochran and his friend had uh, unearthed a whole load of Eddie Cochran memorabilia during the pandemic. Now I'm sure Vince knows this but there's hardly been any memorabilia of Eddie Cochran available in the public domain because his mum, Alice, um, basically kept as a shrine in Eddie's bedroom because Eddie died in April 1960 in a car accident in the UK, very tragically. And he
0: was 21?
2: Yeah, he was only 21. It was Easter Sunday, 17th of April. Um, And Vince knows all about this far better than I do because he was not there but he was part of the whole gang and tour at the time so she basically locked up all of his belongings in his bedroom and she used to treat it as a shrine and used to go and sit in it and basically everything was kept away from being sold um when she died his sister gloria took that over this is funny because this is about this links back to your first comment and then th- when she died, the family put all of his belongings and more into lockup in Pasadena in various storage units. Those storage units were bought by an antiquities collector um, in Pasadena. And he started to put them on eBay. He didn't even know the worth of them. And the person that we know, um, Sonny West, um, he actually is a massive collector of rock and roll memorabilia and he saw this on ebay in the first lockdown thought this can't be true they can't have this so he bid for it and lost whatever it was it was some like an award i think it was his first award Mm -hmm. that he got and um and then bid for something else and then got in touch with the seller and said i'll buy everything Give me! Pr- I do not want it all going to lots of different people. I want it all to be kept in one place, just like Alice and Gloria intended, and I want to set up some kind of museum for it. So anyway, he had the idea of this. He managed to get all of this information. His friend Simon was at a meeting with me and um, our producer, Ben Charles Edwards, and mentioned it. And then we said, this would make a great documentary. Yeah. And then I started to research about the man and what he was. He was he was he was considered like a blonde Elvis. He uh, the the UK fans adored him immensely, and he made a massive impact on them. He wore outrageously fashionable and ahead of fashion clothes like red leather pants and silver vests and things like that. The girls absolutely loved him. And the, the story of what happened after he's died really appealed to me as a mum of what his mother tried to do to keep his, his essence going and to mm-hmm. keep in touch with his fans and everything. But the most important thing is that you might not know who Eddie Cochran is, but you will 100% know his records. Like Come On Everybody, which is an anthem for, throughout all ages, summertime blues, something else. He was the grandfather of punk would you
0: believe, yeah. I mean, this this was when I got the phone call and I said, Um, yeah, okay, Eddie Cochran. Yeah, uh, I think I know the name, you know, maybe I'm confusing with something else. And then I obviously opened my phone, went onto YouTube, and I was like, Oh, wow, he sung this, and then he sung that. And, then, and you, you know, you're right, I think, I think probably because it was. Such a long time ago, he's, he's, he's become dissociated from his music, but the music everybody knows.
2: And that is the point, because he used to sign his autographs at such a young age, Don't Forget Me, Eddie Cochran. Why would you do that? Very strange signature mm. to, to, to very, have. Very strange. Either prophetic or didn't think he was that famous or thought his star would be, you know, like an immediate thing that disappeared overnight, or we could read more into it um but don't forget me is exactly what's happened we 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 effectively have forgotten him and but we haven't forgot his music a, a, at all mm. and what we want to try and do with this documentary is show this powerful short life but the power of his music post his tragic death so we've called our documentary Don't Forget Me um because we want people to remember this this icon this mm. legend
0: and and Vince you were around uh, I don't I don't want to age you past your your <laughs> mature <laughs> years but you you were around the 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 circuit and around Eddie at that time do you have any memory or recollection of him sort of uh Thinking that he was gonna die or something was gonna happen is that something that was he
1: didn't to me But there were one or two other people that indicated it said strange things which one might have just to was Associated with something nice not gonna happen to him, but with me. He was always a brilliant He was just full of fun and mischief particularly and uh, I I mean I was How can I put it when I learned of his death? I was at Heathrow Airport and I was flying to America with him because he wanted to record me because he thought I'd been, you know, mistreated by my management pans regarding records. Because I was, I was, even though I say it myself, a pretty good stage performer. But I had limited record success. And there's various reasons for that, but we, which we won't go into. But Eddie couldn't believe that I hadn't had a hit. And when I was going to fly to America with him. We arranged to meet at Heathrow. No, sorry, I beg your pardon. We arranged to meet at Jean's flat because Eddie had been staying when he was in London at a hotel, Stratford Court Hotel on Oxford Street. And because of this, they were working the night before. I was. We were due to fly to America. They were working, as everybody knows, in Bristol with a hippodrome. And uh, so I spoke to him at his digs on the Friday or Thursday. And I said, you know, I'll meet you at the airport, blah, blah, blah. And his manager also said, you know, that's fine, we'll, we'll do that. And then the final instructions were to meet at Jean's Flat in Fulham.
2: That's Gene Vincent, isn't Jean it? Gene Vincent, yeah. I beg
1: your pardon. Um, to meet at Jean's Flat in, in Fulham. So... I said, okay, I'll meet you at the airport. So my driver, my roadie, Noel, he drove me to the airport uh, because the, we, the boys didn't turn up at Jean's Flats. I phoned my manager and said, get to the airport. They'll join you there. There was a party last night. Now, this would be about, I guess, 10 o'clock, Easter Sunday morning, 60. Um, I got to the airport. I checked in and... My roadie always used to stay with my car at anywhere I may be flying from or train or otherwise just in case it didn't come off. Then he could take me and my luggage, whatever. So he waited. So I went in about 10 o'clock. It was a 1 o'clock flight, Pan Am. And I sat in the VIP lounge. And I was sat there for a while and then this gentleman came in, an elderly gentleman, and uh, he looked, pretty much down and he sat a few chairs for me because of the VIP lounge, you know, the armchairs and it, it, I recognised him, it was Count Basie and uh, I got talking to him or trying to talk him, but he seemed pretty, you know, reluctant to enter into any sort of conversation and it transpired that he was going home because his father had died in Chicago and he was touring Europe with his band, he was in England and he'd found out, so he was going back via New York to Chicago for his dad's funeral. So I thought, oh, well, I wouldn't talk about that anymore, which I didn't. So I'm having my complimentary coffee and silence and sat there pretty bored. Then the phone went and it, there was a desk or a table in the, uh, in the VIP lounge. And the lady who's manning it calls me across she said, it's for you, Mr. Eager. I said, oh, who is it? She said, I don't know. So I took it and it was a guy called Dennis Atherton who was Larry's press officer, did most of Larry's publicity for his, his lads. And he said, have you heard the news? I said, no, Well, He said, well, there has been a smash. After Eddie and Jean left last night, they didn't go by train, which we all believed they were going to. They got a taxi and apparently it had an accident and Jean is seriously injured but Eddie is not too bad. That's the message I got. I said, oh, he said, so Eddie will possibly be able to fly with you, but you go, and then he'll fly tomorrow and meet you there. So I thought, oh, that's strange. So I sat down, and uh, Count Basie, he said, is everything all right? I said, well, not really. I said, uh, my pal's been involved in an accident. He said, oh, that's so sorry to hear that. I didn't mention his name. And then... 20 minutes later, there's another phone call from Larry Parnes, who is the promoter of all Eddie's shows. And he said, uh, I've just heard from Norm Riley that it's not Gene that's very badly injured, it's Eddie. And he's not expected to live. I said, what? So I got my luggage back, my driver was still waiting, got it in the car, and Heathrow was situated on the M4 in those days, which is now, on the A4, which became the M4. So it was a good road down to, Ch- uh, to St. Martin's Hospital in Bath. Right? So we drove down, we went into reception, a lady recognised me from TV, she said, oh, have you come to see about Mr. Cochrane?" I said, yeah. She said, uh, oh, I'll just wait a minute, please. So she came back, she said, all oh, Mr. Eager, come this way. So I went with my roadie. Noel, and we went into this office, and it was a surgeon. He said, are you related? I said, no, we're just, he's a good pal. He said, well, I'm sorry to say, he's not going to make it out of the day, let alone, you know, he said, he's, he's really beyond repair. And, and that was that. And I went out of a different entrance then, or exit, and there was Larry Parnes, who was my manager and also promoting at his shows. Norm Riley, who was <clears throat> the promoter of the agent from America who had booked Eddie and Gene for the tour, uh, uh, Billy Fury, whose birthday it happened to be that day, and a guy called Dickie Pride, another singer from... And we stood there, and Larry Pawn said... And this is before Eddie died, Larry Pawn said, oh, he said, that's sad. He said, flippantly. He said, uh, because his next record, it's Three Steps to Heaven. And with that, I just left. I said, like, Come on, Noel, we're off. And uh, I never really, I did speak to Pant, I had to because I was booked by him, but I, after a, a year, I'd had enough of him and I broke my contract and I had to just do nothing for two years. He was going to sue me, but that's, that's how it all came about. We all got to hear, but uh, it was awful. You know, then the next day, it was headlines in most of the newspapers, and there was a photograph of myself, uh, Norm Riley, uh, Larry Parnes, Dickie Pride, Billy Fury, myself. There's this picture that hit the papers, and uh, it said, Vince eager to accompany Body to the States. So already Parnes was getting six stories out of the situation, and it really peed me off. You know, I, I, I didn't like the man anyway. Uh, And that was that. So I disappeared for a couple of weeks. I went to stay with friends in Cheam and they didn't tell anybody where I was. Only my roadie and my mum and dad knew. And I stayed there. And that was that. I didn't go.
0: And that was 63... 1960.
2: So 63 years ago? 63 years ago. And just for context, Three Steps to Heaven was Eddie's first um, UK number one, which was released... As after his death and um, it is it prophetic again but also the money was made after his death through having his first UK number one
1: but there's a very interesting sort of uh, dilemma, not dilemma but it, it's weird for me a couple, 18 months ago was it, a year or 18 months ago I saw a photo in a magazine and it was of me with Eddie now most of the photos, because people didn't have cameras in those days like they do now, of course. I had a few of Eddie and I in the dressing room and, and elsewhere, but I didn't have this particular photo. And I, I thought, how, I wonder where that's from. And it was quite strange because I then found out it had been discovered in this locker
2: oh, oh no. after
1: his death. <laughs> and I want to know how it got there.
2: It's part of the family's photos. The you locker, the the locker, um, the locker room, as as um, Sonny and Simon calls it, the locker room um, storage units, are all owned by the family. So that it's either people who've gifted them to the family or the family have owned themselves.
1: Mm. But I couldn't understand, with Eddie being in America like me, he must have posted it to his mum, Well, I don't quite know how could he have, got it. It could yet. have
2: been a fan, Vince. It could have been, because the fans wrote to, um, Eddie's mum and sister Gloria, ran his fan club, it was an amazing fan club. The questions that you had to answer to get into it were obscure, to say the least, like, do you drink milk? How many glasses of milk do you drink? Do you like boys and girls? Really, really odd, odd mm. questionnaire that they, that they had. Um, and they kept in contact with the fans for years and years and years. And from what I've seen of some of the fan letters, I am sure they would have sent photographs over.
1: Possibly so, yeah. Yeah, it could be. I mean... It, it, I'll have some, to find it for you. <laughs> I'd, love, I'd love a copy. Um, but the, 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 something that w- which was quite weird was that uh, Larry and I didn't get on at all. Um, and Joe, was a ver- Joe Brown's a very good friend of mine. And bless him, Joe, he used to play for Eddie and Eddie loved him. The thing about Joe is Joe's got such a, terrific personality and charisma and he's a brilliant guitarist so everybody loved him some people didn't because he spoke too much truth but others did and I was one of them but I, shortly after Eddie's death I was sent a photocopy of something from a magazine where Eddie had been interviewed obviously prior to his death about your favourite colour favourite this, favourite that and I read it and doubt me it came to favorite musician and he said Joe Brown and Dwayne Eddy and then the next one was who are your best friends? And he said Gene Vincent, Buddy Holly and Vince Eager. Well Buddy Holly of course was had died by earlier in that previous year. But it said he'd he'd said Buddy Holly then, even though Buddy wasn't alive. You know, it was weird. And myself, which then upset me even more. Because I mean I know we were very close and we did share a lot of personal things uh, and, and we got on great together but uh, to find out he'd put this in and it was I was so chuffed because he'd put Joe alongside Dwayne Eddy you know mm. that was a big a big part of it
0: so let me let me move the conversation a little bit because um, on the 22nd of May there's going to be a blue plaque unveiled at the hippodrome in Bristol mm-hmm. Bristol hippodrome <laughs> yeah. um and so has this come about because of making the documentary? Yeah, so
2: yeah. Um, uh, Mike Reed, uh, the DJ and songwriter, um, he uh, was a massive Eddie Cochran fan and is friends with Joe Brown and Vince, everybody. And he decided he would make a case for the Blue Plaque he thought was well overdue. And we had a long discussion about which venue should it be at, where should it be at, you know, initially we were thinking of Ipswich because that was the first
1: first date. Yeah, go first
2: date of that that tour, um, which Vince was at, and um, and then uh, Mike got in touch with various uh, of the of the venues, and the Bristol Hippodrome said, "We've been waiting for this. This is this is what we would love to 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 have." So then the campaign, because you've got to go through a process, and it's not just oh, you can have a blue plaque. Um, so I think it took Mike around about six months to get the okay for it.
0: And do you think that, that six months is, is, uh, quick because it was Mike Reed? I
2: I think he knew people, but I think also because the Bristol Hippodrome had said they wanted to do it as well. Also, uh, there used to be a commemoration of his death, um, at the place of the crash, I understand, um, every year. And I think, you know, sometimes you hit on the right time and a bit like right time, right place. Yeah. So we've had a real difficulty getting a date put together to get certain people um, there because um, with no disrespect, the people who actually knew Eddie, or are, are, are most of them are in their late 70s, early 80s. And we've had COVID and various lockdowns and people have been poorly, and people are reluctant to travel still. Um, So we're very fortunate that we've actually managed to get a date. We've had several dates, but this one is 100% going ahead on the 22nd of May. Bristol is really looking forward to it as well.
0: Today, what's the date today? It's the
2: 15th. 15th, yeah. So not long to go. Yeah, next next Monday. Yeah, exciting. So um, really looking forward to it, and um, I think it's uh, Eddie got admitted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986. So I think this is fitting for his British fans, because when he did pass away, uh, my understanding, and Vince, please correct me if I'm Mm. wrong here, is the column inches in the states were were very few, minimal. Yeah. Very minimal. few and far between. His fan base was 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 burgeoning. I think the word right word in the UK, and his his career was really taking off in the UK, um, and the column inches in the UK were were hundredfold, um, and remembered I think exceptionally well in the UK, Vince, because yeah. of the friends he'd made on the tour of, in the musicianship, um, as well, but. There's a little-known fact about Eddie, if you'd like me to tell you Absolutely. This. Um, one, he had um, size four feet and used to wear sample shoes. He had a massive collection of unusual shoes, some of which have been found in, in these lockers. Um, and uh, um, secondly, when he came over uh, to, to the UK, he had a whole new wardrobe. So in America, he used to wear a sports coat, and peg slacks and loafers. And I, I don't know whether Jean gave him a few hints, Vince.
1: He may have done. He may have did because they did tour together a lot. They did Australia was one place they did. But I would think possibly so, yeah.
2: Because he started wearing red leather pants and silver vests <laughs> and brightly coloured shirts and everything and became a massive hit mm. Like in, in, in that in Maybe a
0: different market, I guess. You mm. know, different sort of cultural... Sensibilities, but his, his
1: sense of humour was was wicked. I mean, we, I remember we were doing a a show at Taunton Odeon or Gaumont, and uh, my driver, my my roadie Noel, his sister lived in Somerset in Froome, and so from London we said my my, my driver said, let's go find my sister's in Froome. She'd love to meet Eddie as I knew, and so he said, well, fine. So we left a couple of hours earlier and we drove to Froome and uh, we had tea, Somerset tea, and uh, got in the car. Now we were off the beaten route, sort of country roads. And I'd said to Eddie one day, or Eddie said to me one day, man, I want to drive on the right-hand side of the road. I said, why? He said, because I do. I was promised it in Australia, because they do, of course, but uh, I couldn't do it, but I want to do it, and your car is an automatic, and I said, okay, okay. And he'd been on about this for a couple of weeks. So we're in this countryside outside Fruitton, and I said, come on, and drive. <coughs> so he got behind the wheel, and he was lethal. He was. <laughs> I had to stop him within less than uh, uh, half a mile. I said, man, you're not safe. You're not safe. So we got to the theatre and we got there about 4 o'clock in the afternoon and uh, we were sharing a dressing room and I came out to talk to one of the musicians or something and I went back in and there he was naked in our dressing room. I said, what are you doing? You're not on for another couple of hours. He said, I'm after your ass. I said, what? And he said, I've got it. And with that, I ran out of the dressing room door and I ran across the stage... With this naked <laughs> hero of mine chasing me up, th- up the aisles, back down again, and uh, we got back to the. Uh, I got he he went round and back to the dressing room, and I nipped outside on one of the crash. you know, the crash doors to get out, so I got out and he went back. But that was his sense of humour, and apparently when he'd been in Australia, which was the only right-hand side driving of the road he visited, he was he was a totally. Captivated by the fact that he could actually drive on the right hand side of the road and so he said he wanted to out there they wouldn't let him i let him for about a mile or whatever it was it was very short and he nearly killed us then so and that was uh, only i guess four or five weeks before he did actually die in a car crash
0: well that that actually you you kind of preempted my last question that i was going to ask you okay. which is what's your most rock and roll story there must be a there must be a, a more rock and roll oh than being chased by oh. naked Eddie Cochran. Is it, it? Am I right in thinking that you're the fish and chips up to Glasgow? Was that you?
1: Yeah, with Billy Fury, that was.
0: Yeah, you drove from London. Yeah, fish and chips.
1: That's all right. What's
0: wrong with that? <laughs> just tell. Just briefly explain that. I don't know anyone who's driven 400 miles to
1: Je, uh, Joe and I had been uh, working in Glasgow at the Empire for a week. And we found this great fish and chip shop, really good. So we used to go there every every night after the show and get fish and chips and go back to the flat we were renting for the week. And uh, we got back to London. Now, when in, in London, there was a, a period of time for about six months, I guess, that Billy, Joe and I had flats in the same building in Paddington, Westbourne Park. Uh, Joe was in the basement with his mum uh, I was on the ground floor and Billy was on the first floor. And we were always in Joe's flat, and Mum was Mum Brown was looking after us and cursing us for being so close to her and all this, you know. And she was a real, real character. So <clears throat> when we finished in Glasgow, we came back and we sat there on the Monday evening. And uh, Joe says, Cool, blimey, mate. I can all fancy some of those fish and chips from Glasgow said, yeah, it'd be nice, wouldn't it? So Billy said, were they good? We said, yeah, though, great. Well, come on then, let's go up. And Billy had just bought an MGB, MGB GT, little blue sports car. So we got in his car and we drove up to Glasgow for fish and chips. The three of you? No, two of us. And, Billy, and bought them Billy back and again. I, and we bought them back. <laughs>
0: so how and long we, is that a round trip? That's like eight miles. Oh, it knows
1: there was no motorways then. There was the, the M1, was, I think, was open then. The M1 was just they're not cold
0: them. when you got them. Oh, yeah, of
1: course <laughs> they were. I mean, that's, that's, that's... That didn't matter, did it? You that's really pretty rock and roll.
0: That is, That's pretty rock and roll. I oh, yeah, that's rock and yeah.
1: roll. That's what we did. We did some daft things. Have you got you another know, one?
2: I, mean, I think you need to know about the wrestling.
1: I mean, uh, <laughs> Joe... Uh, not Joe. Uh, Eddie and I, uh, we were invited to a, a party in my hometown of Grantham. Uh and Gene heard about it and he wanted to come as well. Well, it so happened we were working in Leicester, which wasn't far from my hometown. So uh, I said, you know, come across to my place in Grantham. <clears throat> stay the night, we'll, you know, have a bit of fun. Then we'll go to tomorrow's gig. So he's going back to London because I forget where the next day's gig was. So uh, we did. And they came after the show back to Grantham. And my road manager, Noel, had set all this up. And he said, there's a great party going on. And I forget the name of the street, which annoys me, but there's a big, big party going on. Loads of girls, booze and that. I said, all right, let's go. So we went. And uh, we sort of, they had candlelight. So you could hardly see anybody. And uh, Eddie and Jean had a really, really good time. Uh, I behaved myself somewhat because it was Grantham. Bad news (laughs) travels fast. Uh, And it wasn't until... Two weeks afterwards, that I found out what Eddie and Jean had been up to. What then? Nobody knew who they were because the lights were so low, and nobody asked them. <laughs> so mean,
2: incognito. Pardon. Incognito. Yeah, incognito. Natural
1: charm. Yeah. Are they with? I mean, Gene. Gene couldn't be relied upon for consistency, other than being consistently either good or bad. no, no, no not that's, that's wrong. Either full of fun. Or miserable. That was consistently inconsistent. Yeah, yeah, yeah consistently inconsistent. But to Eddie it was always the same. He never, never varied. He was up for a laugh. I think the worst time I had with them was when we'd worked at the Worcester Gaumont, and uh, Eddie came in off stage. He closed the first half, and he said, "Have you seen Gene, who was in the separate dressing room?" I said, "No." I said, "Man, he's struggling with his leg." He said he's really bad. So uh, we watched. Gene from the wings in the second show, and bless him, he could hardly move. So we came off, we went back, we were were staying. Ironically, it was called the Star Hotel in Worcester, and we all had three separate rooms. And uh, we went to Gene's room, and I hadn't seen him before, but he was in so much pain, Eddie took his leg iron off, uh, and then they sat there. And I didn't drink in those days, and probably very rarely have a beer, um, and they had a bottle of Jack Daniels and they just woofed it down them and got absolutely wrecked. And uh, it seemed to kill the pain for Gene. And uh, and that was that. I went to bed and left them comatosed on their beds.
0: So, um, okay, that 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 actually kind of might tie everything up nicely because leg injuries and sport. Right. This was originally a jiu-jitsu podcast, as I said right, to you well, before. And you said to me that rock and roll in the uk yeah was was kind of uh synonymous and and was linked with wrestling it
1: was very much so there used to be a (coughs) the, the, the most popular place in the west end from about 1956 onwards it was a place called the toys coffee bar and it had been bought by um two wrestlers ray hunter and paul lincoln and they'd brought it off two Iranian brothers whose Christian names began with I, hence the two eyes. And uh, there was a cellar and you could just about get 70, 80 people in there and had a tiny stage. And they used to have people coming on and doing things. And then it started where Wally Whiten, a guy called Wally Whiten, had a group called the Vipers and they started playing there, and they were really good. They were a skiffle group. Now, skiffle was a spin-off of trad jazz, and it was acoustic instruments such as a banjo, a guitar, double bass, sometimes the, the drums, but more so with a washboard. And uh, the Two Eyes Coffee Bar, the basement, became the top place for this. And then... One or two guys started going in and they had like open mic, as you might call it. It wasn't really. It was just somebody gets up and sings, but they used to have open mic. And then people started singing Elvis Presley and uh, Bill Haley songs, Charlie Gracie. And then the two guys that owned the two eyes, Paul Lincoln and Ray Hunter, were wrestlers. And they used to sit in the basement, where was it was we used to play, and they would sit together and plan out a forthcoming bout, the evening of bouts. They used to do the, a lot of the Granada cinemas, and they would say, "Okay, well, when we get to uh, Bedford, maybe how many times has this guy been there? Well, let him lose this time, so he loses here." You,
0: you mean it, it's not real? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to sh- so sorry
1: to shatter your dreams and and they used to plan and we knew what was going to happen well there was a guy and I'm trying to think of his name he, Les Les his name was let's call him Les for now and he w- used to manage a rock and roller called Wee Willie Harris and they had a piano down the two eyes and they encouraged We Wee Willie they called him to get up and play which he did and he was brilliant Absolutely brilliant. And uh, more and more rock and rolls. Terry Dean came in there, Tommy Steele. And so it became the birthplace of British rock and roll. And there is a plaque outside. It's a fish and chip shop now, sadly. Poor Poppies. But outside there's this plaque which Marty, Cliff, the Dallas Boys, um, or quite a, lo- a number of us went to commemorate or to for the unveiling and uh, it's still there but the place is a fish and chip shop but they're still using the fish and chip shop to interview people relative to 1950s rock and roll and they've got these terrible american uh pictures up there which totally sort of uh, it's disingenuous because it was nothing to do with our area. we were washboard piano guitar uh, t Chest bass down there, that's what it was. And I, I myself, uh, my, I had a trio, well, three guys, and we'd been in the, the uh, World Skiffle Championships on a Monday night, which was live on television. And the bass player was a guy uh, I started playing the harmonica with named Brian Licorice Lockin, And he later went to play with the Sh- Marty, then the Shadows, when I was with Larry Parnes. But Licorice and I, we went down there and we sort of, we were lucky and the guy offered us a residency. So we left our homes in Grantham and we went down there and Brian and the other two guys, Brian and I made it but the other two guys, they, they, their musical standard wasn't up, well their music wasn't up to standard and uh, we still good pals, where well, we were till a couple passed on. But uh, Yeah, the two eyes was, and you'd get people going in out of curiosity, particularly the Americans. It's where Vince Taylor started. He came from America, although he was English, and he started in the Two Eyes Coffee Bar. Wally White and the Vipers—they were massive. Cliff—he was discovered there. You know, this this is Cliff Richard. Oh yeah, Cliff was discovered there. Uh, Billy used to sing down there. That was when we lived together, and we used to go down. we used to nick Larry Parnes' our manager's car keys off his bedside table when he was asleep, and we used to get in his car and go down the West End from his Knightsbridge flat.
0: That's why he didn't like you when you were a bit older. He didn't
1: like me. Didn't he didn't, <laughs> well, he liked me. The minute he left me, but he didn't, uh, met me. But Vince, t- Vince Taylor
2: does an amazing Eddie Coch- Cochran um, cover. Okay. And it's one of the few vi- music videos, I suppose, from, from that day. Yeah. Um, he was famous in France. He had most of his career in France. He did. Didn't he? he was. It's very. I, he's just like. He's like. It's literally what I I truly believe the Sex Pistols must have followed when they covered Eddie Cochran's two songs, is energy and he's all over the stage. He's like. It's almost like punk rock before punk rock was invented.
0: And and all of these things are are they all up on YouTube these these kind of music videos and um the vince taylor one is so so if you send me some links i'll put links to all of these in the show notes yeah all the all the bits and pieces that we've talked about and and some of eddie's songs and probably some of your stuff Mm -hmm. as well vince yeah um yeah we're gonna we're gonna probably keep it nice and short as we've been instructed to do so um thank you very much for talking to me and this is a bit of a crossover, right? Because you guys are shooting and I was recording this morning. So yeah. it's really well, thank nice. Thank you very much for having us. Uh, you're welcome. Yes, yeah, it's, 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 it's been really nice to uh, to chat. And um, the the documentary you're aiming for the end of this year or beginning depends of next? depends on
2: distributors about when they think the theatrical release should happen. Um, but we're hoping either quarter four this year or quarter one next year.
0: Is there somewhere to follow the progress of the film? You, is there a page We're about or to holding set that up.
2: Once we get um, our main contributors, of which Vince is very important to, to that, once we get them all in the can, then we're going to set up the website to, so people can see the progress of right. the documentary that way. Yeah, so we, I'll add that also yeah, to the show we will, notes. Yeah, so 100%. Can, we'll send you the link.
1: Just to tell that when um, Vince Taylor... He, he, he was born in England, then he went to America with his sister, who married one of the um, producers of uh, the major cartoon networks in America. Then he brought Vince back here to make it because he thought he was a rock star. And Vince came back, and Vince, uh, they went down to the Two Eyes coffee bar, and they picked up a band there, and two of them, where, well, one was Brian Bennett, who you're seeing this afternoon, and the other one was Brian Licorice Luckin, and they started playing for Vince Taylor, and that's that's how they got he got started with him. But Vince Taylor was not a popular guy. Hated me because my real name is Roy Taylor, but Larry gave me the name of Vince Eager. So that being Vince Taylor, uh, be being Roy Taylor, he just disliked me immediately uh, and thankfully i had great support from well i didn't matter but the, probably the best of how life how life is you can never tell we were booked vince taylor <coughs> myself <coughs> excuse me to appear at the in paris at there what's it called Just the biggest theater there biggest theatre in Paris, I forget what it's called now, We were, and we had to go across on the train, the boat train, so you used to board it at Victoria and go through customs in Victoria, pre-European, uh, what's it, and you used to go through, and that was it. You were then taken on the train, onto the ship and across to Calais. So this is how it worked out, and so it was an overnight trip, and when just before we got to Paris, the promoter comes in. We, mm-hmm. Willie Harris, and I are there. Uh, Vince Taylor is in another uh, cubicle. And he said to us, the press are going to be there to greet you. We're only there for two or three nights. The press will be on the platform when the train pulls in at 6 o'clock. So anybody who is prepared to put on the stage clothes and make-up, you will be like big stars. We thought, yeah, yeah, we heard all that. So Willie and I said, "Are you doing that?" I said, "I'm not either." So we got off, and we saw Vince Taylor get off the next carriage with his leathers, makeup, his band, and there was about ten photographers, and they're all around them taking photographs. And Vince Taylor wasn't supposed to close the show. Willie was going to close the show. I was closing the first half. And all of a sudden, Willie was put in my place. And uh, Hmm. Vince Taylor was put in his. He went on that night, absolutely wowed them. And the next day we saw him uh, in a coffee bar nearby about three in the afternoon and he looked absolutely rough. And apparently what had happened, he'd picked up a a lady of the night and uh, he'd got in her car And he was amused to find that it was a a British car, hence the steering wheel was on the right hand side of the road. And it was the the girls of the night, later at night, used to use these cars because it was close to the pavement and they could chat people up without leaning across. So the hookers in Paris used to drive on the right hand side of the road. And it was Vince Taylor, he actually told me that. And he stayed there, he didn't come back to England. He came out for a bit and then he became a massive star. Yeah, massive he was a massive star, yeah. star in France just because he was prepared to put makeup on and his stage suit at six o'clock in the morning.
0: So let that be a lesson to you guys who are listening. Yeah. Put your makeup on and put your stage suit on. <laughs> Never miss an opportunity. No, is the no. lesson. And um, if you need to um, find some company when you're in Paris, look for a right hand drive yeah that's a good point (laughs) (laughs) all right so thank you again for coming in and chatting um all you guys who are listening to this probably my my normal people um you know where to follow the podcast which is at white basement pod on instagram and hopefully all the people who are your audience who've never heard of me and would never listen to my podcast at white basement pod on instagram and we catch you next time